So where are we going to go today? We are going to finish Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 through 29. And then we're going to go through 42, 1 through 9. We are going to continue this courtroom scene where we finished off last week. If you remember last week, the prosecution, God rested his case before God the judge and God the jury. Um, in his claim, he said he directs, in his case, he claimed to direct world history. We saw that in 1 through 7 and then 8 through 20. Now it's the idolaters' turn to try and make that same claim uh, with the work of their hands, their small g-gods. Therefore, God the judge wants proof of these claims and ask the defendants, these idolaters, to predict an event, um, um, predict an event and then fulfill this prediction, therefore demonstrating the same control of history that the real God has. So we're going to see if these idols pass the test. And if they do not, what God the judge is going to say about their lack of ability to answer and meet this challenge. So today we hear from the defense, man's created idols, see if they will answer God, and most likely they will not. And then we're going to cross into chapter 42, and we're going to take a look at the servant God is bringing in, who will bring justice to the nations, and this will be this servant's ultimate task. We're going to break down the passages in the following way. We're going to look at chapter 41, 21 through 24. Idols are exposed and their worshipers an abomination. 21 through 24, idols are exposed and their worshipers an abomination. Chapter 41, 25 through 29, we're going to see God is the sole director of history. So for 25 through 29, God is the sole director of history. And then 42, 1 through 4, God's servants, his tasks, and his success. God's servant, his tasks, and his success. And then 5 through 9, in 42, 5 through 9, God confirms his servant's tasks. So let's look at the passage. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that may, we may know you are gods. Do good, do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up the one from the north, and he has come. 
from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we may know, and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say in Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these there is no counselor. Who, when I ask, gives an answer? Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. 42. Behold my servant who I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A fainting, burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will grow faint. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I will take your hand, and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, then the new things I declare. Bring, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to thank you so much for this time that we can come before you. We just want to praise your name and, and lift you up. For we see you mightily in this Old Testament book of the words your father spoke through Isaiah. How incredible to see you already, already shining forth before us. We just want to thank you for this passage today. Holy Spirit, speak through your message. And just quiet our hearts and our minds and help us to focus on you as we see you so mightily in this passage. Amen. So chapter 41, verses 21 through 24, we're going to see idols are exposed and their worshipers an abomination. It's a big word, abomination. It's something that God uses when he's highly disgusted. So verse 21 says, Set forth your case, says the Lord, Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. So here we go. We left. God had rested his prosecution. 
Now the defense is supposed to make their case. The idolaters are before the judge, and they're being invited to make their case. This says, set forth your case. Or bring in your idols. We want to cross-examine them. Bring your proofs. Means bring your strongest arguments. Bring them before God. And he uses the word king of Jacob. So God, the judge, is identifying himself as the lone God against these idolaters who have made their own idols. And what do we know about that? God says in 95.3, saying, For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all small g gods. So God's established already that he is above all. There is nothing that even can closely compared to him. So these little g handmade gods are no threat. And God, much like he did with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, is allowing a comparison to be offered here. And I personally am no expert in the law. I leave that to my wife. But it seems like the defendants here are being pulled into a trap. Let's see. Verses 22 and 23. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. So God is telling the idolaters in 22, bring the stuff that you made, bring it on in. So imagine that picture. Here they are in a courtroom, God's saying, go get your stuff. So they have to scurry out of the courtroom, go get this stuff, probably wanted to, to spit polish it, get it going, fix the nail holes that they had to take it off the wall so it would be movable. Now they've brought it in before God, brought it in before God. And God asked the works of their hand, tell us what's going to happen in two aspects. The first aspect, the easier of the two. If they could answer, they would want to answer this one. What has happened in the past and what was the outcome? So this question is inviting these handmade objects to explain what has happened with past events? And we see the word what used three times in these two verses, in 22 and 23. And it's used in an interrogative way. God is asking these handmade idols, if they have the sense of history, what is their opinion on past events? And where do they think the events are heading? Basically, can they foretell the future and understand what has occurred in the past? If they could, meaning that the humans that made these idols, would remember what Elijah and the prophets of Baal went through, I think they would quickly beg for forgiveness. So the second aspect, can they predict the future? Verse 23 we move from God asking about the past to now the future. 
it is not really even asking, right? He's about, it's about how they control future events. And they must be able to control them to predict and see the prediction come true, right? If they are true gods, they can answer with certainty. And I like as he's winding up verse 23, he says the phrase, do good or do harm, which means God is basically saying, like we would to somebody, do something, do anything. And then he says that we may be dismayed and terrified. Gives us the sense of the idolaters. They're being taunted in this courtroom scene because their handmade gods are propped up so they can be seen and there's nothing they can do, nothing they can say, nothing they can bring before God. Instead of being dismayed or being terrified, there must have been a gap in time of pure silence, and God the judge moves the trial along. So that's when we get to verse 24 that says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, an abomination is he who chooses you. Now we're going to see verse 24 matches perfectly with, I mean, verse 24 matches with verse 29. So God is summing up the defense's response here so far and telling the idolaters that their small g gods are less than nothing. And the Hebrew word for that, the phrase less than nothing, less than nothing, is expressed as partakers of non-existence. That's a beautiful phrase. You are partakers of non-existence, meaning they are utterly worthless. So God is finishing his description of the idolaters and their, and their arts and craft idols. And what we miss in the English is after he says that, he sighs. And then he says, an abomination is he who chooses you. He says elsewhere, we look in the Bible and look at that. It says in Psalm 155.8, Psalm 155.8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Remember we said they were partakers of non-existence. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And then in Jeremiah 2.5 it says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness, therefore they became worthlessness? So by chasing after things other than God, we are chasing things that are worthless and therefore we will become like them worthless. And Jeremiah is a powerful verse to be taken seriously because when our goal is to become closer to God, striving to be worthy in his presence and ready for his coming, we don't want to be like that. Now the defense has their case rested for them, right? For a lack of response. And even if they could talk, what case would they have made? So now moving on to 41, 25 through 29. 41, 25 through 29. 
God is the sole director of history. Now God speaks, and he registers his claim that he and he alone is the sole director of history, the sole director of history, and alone he must be worshipped. He causes history, he predicts what will happen in the future, and we will see it all come true. Verse 25. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Stirred up, it should be familiar to us. We saw this in verse 2, and it means the same thing. God stirred this ruler up to come and undertake the events God wants performed. And we will hear about the outcome, and we have heard about the outcome long before it happened. Right now, the ruler is again not named, but this particular ruler, as we get closer to Isaiah 44, Isaiah chapter 44, 24, and then all the way through 45, 7, we're going to see that this unnamed ruler is actually Cyrus from Babylon, named named long before he was even on the scene. He will originate from the rising sun, which is the east, but he will invade from the north. But we see an interesting part, it says, and he shall call upon my name. So to us, it may seem like, okay, Cyrus is going to be a believer. He's going to call on God's name. But this phrase has multiple meanings, and I think the best one that we can take from it is that God God has called Cyrus for a specific task, and by completing God's task, he is going to recognize God in his actions by following through. And this makes perfect sense in the rise of Cyrus and his reign as a ruler, and his deeds that he had performed match God's prediction of history all the way through, even to the point that Cyrus released people to go back to Israel after their time was up. Now he shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Like last week, we saw that ruler, he quickly moved through the land. It was like his horse's feet never touched the ground. And it gives us that picture. But we see the word ruler here, it's a unique word. It's used here and here alone by Isaiah. And it's borrowed from the land of, of the King Sargon at the time, from a people I'd never heard of before. They were called the Akkadian people. And the word means like a, provi- a provincial ruler, someone put in place by a stronger king to manage an area. So that gives us this picture of a leader only really concerned for his own life and his own skin. So God will put the fear of Cyrus in this weak leader, and he will gladly, quickly give up the people around there so Cyrus can quickly get a win and keep moving. And what does that give us a reminder of? It gives us a reminder in John chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. It talks about the shepherd. It says, He who is a hired hand 
and not a shepherd, who does not own his own sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves his sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The ruler was placed in charge, and when the rubber met the road, he is the one ensuring he and he alone is protected. He only cares for his own skin like that hired hand. Verse 26, only God provides exact predictions. He says, who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. Here is where the verdict is awarded in the case. God says he is right. It's a term short for righteousness, and it means he was alone, was correct in this case. He now awards the verdict to himself as if it was in any doubt, and the ward is based on his predictive powder, power. As we get to, there was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. Isaiah lived in a land that we see much more like in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, I think, covers it a lot more, where there's a lot of these false prophets who base their predictions on what will earn them favor with the leaders in the area. Like I said, we see this a lot in the book of Jeremiah, and it existed in Isaiah's time. So we see the three uses here of the word none in this verse. And it's there because it's a dramatic statement that shows us that the idols are reduced to silence by the evidence of this unmatched power of God. 27 says, I was the first to say in Zion, Behold, here they are, and I will give Jerusalem a herald of good news. If we could read this in English the way Isaiah sings it here, we would see the dramatic emphasis on the words in this sentence. And it, you know, if you can, I wish we could because we would basically witness probably the first time a song was rapped right here. Isaiah probably put on sunglasses. No, he didn't put on sunglasses, sorry. I'll apologize to him in heaven. But he uses staccato here to get these words across. And it's like in this form. I, he, he says these words like, to Zion, behold, here they are, and to Jerusalem, one, bringing good news I will give. It must have been interesting to hear the beauty of Isaiah and his songs and just how brilliant his words are, and then to hear him go into that. So put that on your celestial checklist. And so when you get up there and it's like, Isaiah, rap to me, my friend. <laughs> and, and we know this message. He, he did it to put emphasis on this message. 
And what is it about? It's about the good news. A herald that is bringing good news. Good news, we know, means gospel. And we know who that herald is. We know who God's messenger is. So God is bringing a messenger with good news. That is what drove Isaiah to wrath. And we know ultimately that will be Jesus. And then verses 28 through 29. But when I look, there is no one. Among these there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. So verse 28 will sum up this case again. It exposes the hollowness of idols and the empty path their followers follow. God even says there is no one who can give an answer. No lawyer for the defense even dares to speak. And like I said earlier, 29 parallels perfect with 24. In verse 24, says they are nothing, they are less than nothing, and they are an abhorrence to God. 29 says they are all delusional. Their works are nothing. The metal images are an empty wind. So 24 deals with the small g gods, and 29 deals with the idolaters. God is saying to worship these handmaid's gods is delusional. It's delusional. And the worshipers are dealing in a false religion and performing false worship. Being compared to an empty wind means you are being compared to something that lacks substance and is unpredictable. Unpredictable. Even if you live in the Antelope Valley and you know it's going to be windy in the afternoon, it's still unpredictable. So now God, with winning the case, we're going to now look at his servant who is following the correct form of worship. We're going to go into 42, 1 through 4, God's servant and his, God's servant's tasks and his success. 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations or make it heard in the street. Oh, sorry, sorry. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The leading task we see in these four verses for God's chosen servant is to bring justice. In the servant song, justice is the scope of his work here. He is required to persevere to the end to accomplish this task. And this servant will carry the message 
to the world to show there is one God. Verses 1 and 3 are linked by the phrase, bring forth justice to the nations or coastlands, and as we learned, coastlands also means nations. So verse 1, the beginning of this servant's song in verse 1 and in the end of 9, both, both begin with the command, behold. And we've learned earlier in Isaiah that means something. This is an order to understand the servant's relationship to the God that called him and obey the tasks that are assigned to him. It's an order for the people to watch the servant carry his work through to success. Servant, this term is a little different than most of them. It's used elsewhere, we see as a messianic term, and it indicates the importance of this person to God, this servant. So this suggests a preeminent person and one who truly embodies servanthood. Uphold means to grip fast. So God shows his love for his servant when he states, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Pretty powerful to think God says that of someone. You might think, of course, God would love someone doing his work. But that's not always the case, right? Because you yourself, in, in, in this world, you can assign someone to a task that you might not approve of or you may not even like them. But the picture here is this servant is God's, the picture of the servant is God's man for the job and God's man for himself. Because what is done with the soul, like he says, in whom my soul delights, is done with passion and love. He's saying this servant I have chosen delights my soul. And we see this further when God says he will put his spirit upon him. And to hear that phrase in the Old Testament is very rare, very rare. Justice in verse 1 to the nations, this justice is about God's truth and the truth about God. The truth is not something the nations are being told to go out and find, but it's something that's going to be brought to them by this revealing servant. Verses 2 and almost all of 3 says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In verse 1, God introduces us to the servant. He is the perfect servant, and we know he's represented by Jesus Christ. And his service listed in these three verses must be our goal to try and provide this service in our own life. The service mentioned here is not seeking glory or fame for ourselves. The three examples God gives us here is number one, shout. 
which shows someone trying to startle someone, cry out. This servant is trying to dominate um, someone or shout someone down. Raise his voice or make himself heard like self-advertising. So the goal should be to perform service for God that a quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening person can perform that actually ministers to other people. And God is also showing us here that nothing is useless to Jesus Christ in his work here. So a bruised reed and a smoldering wick are used as examples of a negative that means a positive. We see the reed cannot be used for support, but no matter what, it will not break. And the burning wick is near extinction, but it will not burn out. So I learned a new word today, or this last week. Because the example of this is the word ligatis. Ligatis. It's not how it's spelled, and it took me a while to figure that out. But what that means, it means an ironic statement in which an affirmative is expressed by the negative. And so to give you an example, it says like, you won't be sorry, meaning you'll be happy. So that's what's being done there. Now we're going to go to the end of verse 3 through verse 4. This is the second justice statement in verse 3, emphasizing faithfulness. Jesus bringing forth God's divine revelation of good news will be done faithfully and with truth. It says, You will no grow faint or discouraged, are a play, these words are a play on the bruised reed and the faintling burning wick in verse 3. Jesus is going to find himself um, subject to the same pressures which we have and the same pressures which have caused others to burn out, but we see Jesus will not burn out. Jesus was not immune from suffering, but that suffering did not deter him from completing his tasks. He had adequate inner strength to persevere and to stand up under the blows, all the blows that he received. Establishes here means to set or place before. And God shows us this in Deuteronomy 4.44 when he says, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. And then up a bit, Deuteronomy 4.4 says to those people that received it, but you have held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. So the servant will bring God's law to the entire world. And law means teaching here. We see a picture of the nation stirring in expectation of Jesus coming. So then in 42, 5 through 9, we're going to see God confirms the servant's tasks. Verse 5 says, 
Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So Al went over with us Isaiah 40:12, and it's a verse that reminds all the people that God, who created everything in the world, directs all things still, and he will comfort Zion. Now, to our benefit, God, through his servant Jesus, now turns to comfort the world. And God uses four descriptors, created, stretched, spread, and gives, to describe this fourfold, unchanging relationship between God and the created. Verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God moves here from creation to his providence, or you could say protection. He cares, he cares for the life he gives. Here we see the servant has been called like the conqueror was last week. But this servant was called in righteousness. And in verses 6 and 7, we see the contrast between the conqueror and the servant begin. Each has their assignments in the righteousness of God. Take, keep, make, all express the purpose here. In order to take, God does not call us to leave, does not call us to leave us to our own devices. He will accompany us. Thus, I will take your right hand and keep you, means he will be our safeguard. I will keep means that he will accomplish all the settled plans that he has. And make in this verse means he will fashion, fashion and shape us. The servant will be a covenant, so he will be exactly fitted for the task so through him, we will come into covenant relationship with God. And while the conqueror drove people further into idolatry, the servant will bring us closer to God. With the covenant, there is light of truth, the healing of personal disabilities, and we see this in the opening of the blind eyes, the end of restrictions, we see that with the bringing out of the captives and the complete transformation, and we see that from the removing darkness. The servant's ultimate task here will be to have a perfect people living in a perfect society. Verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, 
the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This self-proclamation of God reveals that his glory cannot be shared. He will not do it. He will not ultimately tolerate praise to him going to others, especially worthless pieces of wood and metal. And as we saw in verse chapter 41, verses 29, 21 through 29, God alone predicts the future and fulfills it. The former things that God accomplished for the conqueror are done, and the new things that have come are the work of Christ. God declares it before it happened. He is telling us all of them. And we get to see now for the rest of Isaiah the servant Christ and then the conqueror, Jesus, coming. Let's pray. Jesus, we can't thank you enough for your obedience, your love for your Father that is unmatched, and how it is all for his glory. And we have been called to share in that. What an honor it is. May we never take it for granted. May we learn to grow deeper in our knowledge and love for you so we learn that perseverance, so we gain that strength to stand up like Jesus did. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful passage to go through. We thank you so much for it. Amen.